0: Hey everybody how's it going thanks for joining me this morning uh we're here bright and early today to make sure that we got and made this stream happen so many of you really enjoyed the previous stream on Alexander Dugan and his fourth political theory but we only made it through three chapters and so many people wanted to hear more I figured it would be great if we could continue to do the series and luckily luckily Michael Milliman is back and has agreed to go ahead and continue looking through the work of Alexander Dugan. Michael, thanks for coming on again. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. So like I said, we're going to be picking up where we left off. We uh, were on chapter three, so we'll just pick up where we were uh, from there on chapter four here. But before we dive back into Dugan and the fourth political theory, let's go ahead and hear from today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is a conservative nonprofit dedicated to educating the next great American. ISI understands that conservative and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and compelled to defend their reputation and dignity while seeking to carve out a brighter future. ISI has a variety of different content, events, internships, and fellowships geared towards helping students and opening up career opportunities. ISI offers graduate students and entry-level journalists the opportunity to receive fellowships and secure internships. Nate Hockman, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, got his start on national review through ISI. And he's just one of many journalists and academics who were able to start their careers with the help of ISI. This spring, ISI is going to be hosting a debate between Michael Knowles and Deidre McCloskey on the subject of transgenderism that will be live streamed on YouTube. In the fall, everyone's favorite Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, will be giving the keynote address at ISI's annual gala. On all issues, both economic and cultural, ISI wants their students to know that they're not shying away from the problems facing our country, because letting the left win is a pathetic way to watch civilization die. To learn more, check out ISI.org. That's ISI.org. You can follow the link down below in the description of this video. All right, so in chapter three, Dugan, or sorry, chapter four, Dugan steps in and talks about time. Uh, It's just a a few pages, but it's a very interesting few pages. And he starts by uh, talking about the reversibility of time versus the idea of progress, which I think is probably some jarring language for some people. But he kind of sets the stage by saying, the idea we have of time, the concept that we we have of time currently is not one that has been the case in all societies. It has not been throughout history the way that many different cultures and peoples have understood time. And so he says that kind of the the understandings and the writings of Hegel and the concept of social Darwinism have changed the way that we view uh, time. And we see it almost as some kind of monarch that rules us that drives us in a particular direction that time, time itself draws us in a particular uh, way. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of uh, how time has transformed how we see time has transformed through kind of these ideologies that now uh, kind of animate the way that uh, our, our political thinking in the current uh, paradigm.
1: Well, for Dugan, it's a key question, because the idea of the end of history already implies some notion of a directionality to time of an arrow of time of a motor of historical progress that comes to an end so he gets that from Hegel and from Kojev but what he says is that common to all three of liberalism communism and fascism or all three political theories all three modern theories is the idea that time is unidirectional and progressive and so at a very simple level we could say that well what would other models of time look like? So for example, that time is regressive rather than progressive, or that time is cyclical, or that time is uh, you know, not homogenous, that it consists of these sort of distinct heterogeneous moments that are epochal, or somehow that shift the spirit of the times without it being a clear unidirectional march of history, that kind of thing. So because one of Dugan's tasks in this book let's put it this way his dual task is to understand the state of affairs right now from an ideological perspective and to begin to open up the prospects for ideology construction or you know to open up a new philosophical space for thinking about politics so he's able to do that here in this way by showing number 1 the shared thesis of the unidirectionality of time that gives us the analysis the descriptive analysis of the three political theories and the thesis of the reversibility of time or as he puts it the uh my restatement here of it is sort of the political variability of time time varies as a function of political decisions or as a function of political community in other words time is not so unproblematically given as something self-evident and therefore uh dugan is very much trying to force us back into the question of the nature of time of the meaning of time of the sociology of time and just thereby to enrich our conceptual arsenal for thinking about things like the meaning of history here's another small example um to contest the idea that history is unidirectional that it culminates in a final moment like an end of history type thesis doesn't mean to reject completely and in all cases the idea that history is unidirectional because as he says somewhere if for example we relativize history to civilizations Then a certain civilization might be at the end of its history, while another civilization might be at the beginning of its history, you see. So this idea that we're going to pluralize our conceptual understanding of time is for him, as he puts it, one of the fundamental uh, conceptual building blocks for the fourth political theory.
0: Yeah, and and to give an example, you know, people might say, okay, reverse time, how how does this even work? One of the examples he gives would be that, uh, you know, Capitalism was supposed to precede communism, but in Russia, communism led to capitalism, and so it's one of those things that it, this process is supposed to be one directional. It's supposed to be inevitable. It's supposed to be part of uh, kind of the dialectic and human progression. But instead, we see a reversal of what was supposed to happen uh, in in that way. He also doesn't reject the idea of progress, but he just makes it clear that progress is kind of relative uh, to the situation, to the situation and to the goals and the understandings of the civilization it's happening in. And so he's not completely getting rid of the idea of progress, but he's just saying it needs to be understood in the context of the civilization that's kind of observing it.
1: That's right, because in part, when we think about progress, we have implicitly the valuation, what is progressing? Uh, to say we're progressing means we're getting closer to a vision of the good or a standard of the good, or we're implementing more justice or more truth, but truth, justice, and the good are contested concepts. And therefore, progress is going to look different in different places. In one place, it's going to mean more transgenderism. In another place, it's going to mean less transgenderism, depending on how you've evaluated the phenomenon of transgenderism, for example, you know, so on with the other uh, possible contestable social uh, phenomena. What he doesn't mean, if, unless anybody's confused about this, uh, he definitely doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, become younger or something like that, that, you know, the biological aging process is going to be reversed and the direction of a fountain of youth or something like that. So he's not talking about the reversibility of time in the sense that instead of getting older, you get younger. But the problem is that time is something that we interpret. And the interpretations of time are what he's really looking at to a certain extent and in modernity time has been interpreted in this way that it tends towards improvement uh, that the future is going to be better and so on whereas clearly as I'm sure people know who have studied for example cyclical theories of history or catastrophic theories of history uh, there's no guarantee that's not the only way of understanding social time on one hand there's no guarantee there's no obvious guarantee that history is always going to be progressive in that sense and then like I said the key values themselves are contested so by shining a spotlight on all of that in this chapter and in different ways in other chapters he's able to expand the the field of ideological analysis which is his goal
0: so one of the other things that he talks about and this is so often the case with dugan from what i can see so far at least is that the is the need to uh, basically allow each culture, each region, each people to experience and understand time in their own way. So he talks about, you know, ethnic particularities are going to vary the way in which time works. Uh, not assuming you need to make sure that you're not assuming a particular destiny for mankind as a whole and understand kind of individual groups as their own uh, particular uh, set that will move towards, you know, something that is defined by their culture And their understanding. And then, of course, as we've often kind of pointed to with him, political pluralism uh, re reintroducing the idea that, you know, everything doesn't have to be liberalism, we don't have to have a global uh, hegemony of a particular political system that by altering the political system, we can actually alter the way that time is conceptualized inside those societies.
1: Yeah, I would say that political pluralism is comprehensible, I would imagine, for a lot of people, this idea that there shouldn't be one model that dominates, people should be allowed to go their own way to a certain extent, local characteristics, particular characteristics, ethnic, religious, historical, cultural, civilizational, and so on. What is maybe surprising or unique, as you've mentioned, and as people see when they study Dugan, is that for him, that is indissociable from metaphysical pluralism from a worldview pluralism you know from a pluralism about the big questions and the key concepts of even the sciences so in one place he says that in a civilizational multipolarity there would be different sciences okay like a russian science indian science uh, african science and so on i think today when when we hear that it's often the case that we're familiar with like uh you know the attack on two plus two equals four by people who relativize it and argue that two plus two equals five or that um you know western white man's ways of knowing have been oppressive to the uh, aboriginal type ways of knowing or something like that so we're familiar uh more or less with some like version of that but dugan's model tries to be much richer and much more sophisticated and what much better founded So he takes an interest in the constitution of the sciences and the relationship of science and language and why it is that we've inherited certain models of understanding and knowledge. So it's not, what I wanna say is this, in some cases, it's a reflexive, like anti-colonialism, right, where people just say, we're gonna reject Western ways of knowing because we're rejecting Western colonialism and they sort of embrace what seem like foolish alternatives that don't really stand the test of serious reflection maybe some do to a certain extent but for the most part they come across as like buffoonish so dugan's model tries to combine i would say the anti-colonialist impulse but with being rooted intelligently in the thoughtful deep sources of all of these um intellectual tendencies intellectual uh yeah for example he had a lecture course in russian not available in english unfortunately on a school of thinkers called the phenomenologists where he went into detail about sort of phenomenological interpretations of science and things like that so he's not just buffoonishly rejecting western uh, colonial imperialism but it does follow from his political pluralism that our intellectual models of the world should also be plural and uh time our interpretation of time would be a part of that
0: yeah and I think it's important for people who do understand Dugan as a political actor with a with a very particular geopolitical agenda to understand that maybe maybe you do think that these arguments are completely opportunistic and they are just there to forward kind of his understanding of kind of how the world should be but I want you to understand that these ideas precede Dugan and they are they were often advanced by people who weren't anti colonialists For instance, Oswald Spangler spends lots of time in uh, decline of the West explaining that art, math and science are particular to cultures. He talks about how you know the the Greeks could not do certain types of math because their metaphysical animating spirit, like their understanding, of the world around them simply wouldn't allow them to grasp certain mathematical concepts. And so that how all of these things that are supposed to be objective, these disciplines that are supposed to be objective pieces of knowledge, are still inextricable from the, from the cultures that practice them. And so Dugan's assertion here, while you, know, you could read this as anti-colonial, you could see this as uh, an attack on kind of American empire or Western hegemony um it is something that has been advanced by people who did not have that agenda at all so the so this while he might you might say he's only picking it for that reason if you if you're kind of thinking he's nefarious in this way he is still drawing on sources of people who did not have that agenda
1: yeah i think we could even take a step further and state the case more strongly which is that some of the people who recognized the crisis of the sciences the difficulty of rooting objective mathematical science in the fact of subjective human experience for example hosterl who has wrote, written about this in the crisis of the european sciences uh, not only was he not anti-colonialist let's say in the case of spangler maybe there's still some anti-western uh, uh position from the right or something like that okay they're a right-wing um anti-bourgeois anti-capitalists you know who are <laughs> they criticize the west from that perspective but hosterl was a defender of europe of great western european modernity and it's uh philosophical roots and philosophical fruition and even he recognized and this is important not only for Dugin, in other words not only for people who are who are criticizing the west from outside of it but even for defenders of liberal democracy to a certain extent like leo strauss was very much indebted to Husserl, um, you're exactly right that the problems are philosophical problems. They have a political dimension, but that's secondary because whether you're in the West as a defender of the West or outside of the West as an enemy of the West or anywhere in between, the problems remain problems. How do you understand the nature of scientific life? How do you deal with the question of the foundation of the sciences? And you're exactly right, there's a tradition well within Western philosophical canon dealing with those questions. Um, but then how you end up answering them, what you do with them, where you land after having raised them, that's where all the variation uh, comes in
0: now, near the end of this chapter, he talks about political forms that are not connected to time and progress. And, uh, it's interesting because, you know, he is saying that basically this is all of the forms that we have now, all of the modern forms, uh, are, make certain demands on time and progress. Do you think that the, the fourth political theory, and obviously he uses this as kind of a working thing, what does that look like? Or is there, is there an indication of what that looks like where the theory itself is completely uncoupled from time of progress? Because wouldn't there have to be some understanding of what progress looks like inside the political theory for it to have any prescriptive power?
1: So yes, in the sense that you're getting closer or further away from some target. So if we call progress you're getting closer to your target, then you know, as far as any political theory sets up a direction and you can be closer or further away from the end or from the target, then there's gonna be progress. But it's different in the sense there's two different meanings of the word progress, because one is you're getting closer to the goal or to the target that you've set yourself. And another one is that you've interpreted time itself as unfolding in a unidirectional linear way where the further along you are in time and so on, you know, there's more truth revealed or more justice revealed or something. So I think that it is possible to reject the progressive view of time and still to have goals that you're closer or further towards in any given uh, case. Again, I think the easiest way to see it is that the question of what constitutes progress is contested. And therefore, there can be different kinds of um directionality set up so a nice point of reference okay i'm going to tell you something that i like to do when i read dugan then that i personally have found helpful other people may want to do this with another author than the one that i did it with but that's correlating dugan's thought to other thinkers who are more familiar to us somehow because dugan is this you know russian figure drawing on these sources and it's not easy to place him necessarily in all cases into our coordinate system but um I think about Leo Strauss, for example, a scholar of the history of political philosophy is dearly important to me. I recommend that everybody studies Strauss and learns from him uh, and read Strauss and Dugan together. So Strauss had an essay called Progress or Return, where he too distinguished between two orientations towards time, one that sees, let's say, the better place in the future and one that sees the good life in its repentance. in it's turning around, turning away, turning back, going to the better origins and roots of our tradition as opposed to gradually getting alienated from them forgetting them and um and all of that so the idea that you can have these different orientations towards time as you said it's not just in strauss excuse me it's not just in dugan it's also in strauss and it shows you the possibility of these different ways and you can look like he says in another chapter we'll probably have an opportunity to discuss it just look at some of the groups today existing on the world stage, who repudiate the logic of modernity as fundamentalists, for example, uh, you know, who don't want to have anything to do with not even the postmodern, but just the modern. So those competing interpretations of time are viable. And so your point is well taken as well. They still have some directionality in them, and in that sense, progress in another uh, meaning. Gotcha.
0: All right. So our next chapter is on globalization and its enemies. And he kind of starts by framing what he calls the New World Order, which is kind of West, the Western liberal democratic empire. Uh, and he says that it's advanced through, I think, a lot of things that people are now familiar with, you know, free markets, democracy, human rights. Um, and it's focused very much on the transition from, na- from kind of the classical nation state like the Westphalian system to kind of the post uh, nation state world uh and he identifies three main camps inside this force of globalization he says one are kind of the neoconservatives and the neoconservatives are interested in an imperial core that is prosperous and benefits from the empire while not caring much about kind of the the outside world the things that lay beyond it and then there are the kind of the multilateralists who are those who will kind of want to bring everyone along for the ride. Uh, This is kind of the more of the Barack Obama or American democratic party uh, who think that you should, you should assemble kind of this global empire, but do it in an inclusive way. Uh, And then finally he identifies kind of the accelerationist wing of the globalists, which are those who are trying to push us uh, to kind of this new world order, this global governance as quick as possible. And he names people kind of like George Soros, I think this is also where you put like, uh, you know, uh, the the uh, 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 what can I suddenly well, think the of the guy. Class, I'm sorry.
1: Class, 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 class. Yes, thank you. Class that
0: class. Class was, I was like the the supervillain guy who wears uh, who wears the the moomoo from uh, from uh, that Sylvester Stallone movie. But yeah, no, it, that's who I was thinking of. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, so these are these are kind of his three basic groups that are going to be contending. Uh, when it comes to the, the pro-globalization side. Could you talk a little bit about his understanding of, uh, of these two groups and how they interact and what their goals are? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows, and they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
1: Yeah, well, you gave a nice summary of it. So you have neoconservatives, the Democratic Party, basically, and the ultra-globalists. And one of the nice things, first of all, I think it's helpful that he delineates those three tendencies, all of which Mm -hmm. we can see and that he shows that they all, even though they differ slightly, like the imperial versus multilateral versus uh, radical globalism, they're all, it's all the American project that's firing on all cylinders, you have all three of these things happening, The um, all three tendencies are represented. And opposition to them can take the form of opposition to all three of them. So it's not like you're either on the neocon side or on the Democrat side or on the globalist side. You can see the neocons, the Democrats, and the globalists as of a piece and try to see that they're all tending towards a certain kind of uh, global unipolarity. Because even multilateralism is not multipolarity, it's still America centric, just pulling the allies into the picture. So that's a nice analysis. I think it helps us to to see how we can distinguish these various tendencies and so on and uh, i think he's accurate to a certain extent in setting it up that way it shows that the aims of the neocons the aims of the democrats are not necessarily so far removed from one another uh, all of which is helpful and he's updated some of these analyses let's say in the book called the great awakening versus the great reset where he talks about klaus schwab and the uh, world economic forum and the idea of the globalist agenda as part of a great reset Uh, but one of the things that i also think is interesting is that um a lot of this checks out like you know this was written 2000 uh i think the original russian was 2009 the translation is 2012 and as you read the what he writes about the war for the world order and the american factions that are involved still kind of checks out you know you can see all of these tendencies represented and so too the opposition to them in the way that he delineates it in the next couple of sections
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting that he talks about how all of these are being pursued simultaneously. And so they kind of all move, like you said, they, they share a significant amount of overlap. Obviously they have common goals, but they're also competing. And this is where a lot of people, you know, uh, Yarvin used to call these, he identified many of these factions called them red, red and blue empire inside the American government, but, but very similar kind of breakdown of, of kind of the Pentagon versus the state department. Uh, was kind of the internal political struggle. But I think it's important for people to understand that one of the reasons we continue to see st- tension and one of the reasons that we continue to see conflicting narratives uh, inside our elite structure is that our elites are not one unified mass. They aren't one set of people with one goals, all working from the same kind of crib sheet, You know, the same conspiracy theory, cabal handing everything down. They do... a they do appropriate power in similar ways because the nature of kind of our mass managerial states are to expand in this way. Uh, This is how power is accrued as power centralizes. And so they're all seeking to accumulate power through similar mechanisms, but because they have individual distinct interests inside that kind of elite collective, we do see this back and forth. And that's why those tensions Can spark off of each other, even though it does feel like everyone is moving in a very similar direction.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, But that said, also I just so I just want to say one thing. I don't know, like for me, this was helpful when I read it. But uh, one of the benefits of this analysis is that you zoom out beyond just the factions within the American state, and you begin to see how they're perceived again as of a piece. By uh, the various players outside, and you know, raises the question: um, How significant the internal differences are if there is some momentum growing outside of that context, as like a united front of opposition against all three of them, um, which they may, may be or, or not. But he does point, you know, he does say, the United States is the center of these movements. The United States is clearly the superpower, clearly the hyperpower you know, clearly a lot depends on what happens there and what happens in relationship to what the US is doing and the ideas that it's developing. So uh, I think the analysis is pretty good in that sense.
0: Yep, absolutely. And then he lays out kind of four types of uh, opposition or interaction with globalization at the moment. And he has uh, those nations that are basically just trying to become friendly uh, with the New World Order. Uh, those that are willing to cooperate and open themselves up more or less freely to the uh, cultural, technological, and, and all other demands placed on them kind of by the globalized order. There are those that are willing to cooperate but aren't willing to change. So he puts people like Saudi Arabia into uh, this or you know, uh, states that are wanting to keep their more traditional or particular societies but are willing to provide key things that the, uh, that the global order uh, needs. I, I don't know if he says this particularly, but it seems like those states are kind of depending on it. They're, they're playing a game with time because eventually if the global order doesn't need them anymore, it doesn't have to respect their boundaries. Like Basically, their ability to play the game is, and not get consumed by the, by the global order is based on their inability to kind of be discarded at the moment. They're, they're too important to the project. They provide some key resource or something else that allows them to kind of be hedged against it. Then he has a third category, which is those that take what works in the Western world, uh, and, and kind of kind of filters out some of the things that work from those that don't. And he puts Russia in this category. And then the fourth one are those that are in direct hostile compos- uh, opposition. These are places like North Korea, obviously. And so I just uh, wanted to get your thoughts on those categories. Do you think Russia's really in category three? Uh, I think that's a little hopeful for him in some places. And what do you think about some of the other categories and positions that they're in?
1: So I would say that now Russia has crossed the Rubicon from even from Dugan's point of view, and it has moved from category three to category four, Mm -hmm. which means that Russia is now one of those states that tries to oppose the US directly rejecting western values unipolarity and u.s western hegemony so i think that uh in some sense that's the significance of the ukraine war for dugan is that it was a decisive shift from uh the third to the fourth group and that now it is sort of taken a full-throated um multipolar position like it hadn't done before. But I think he's right. And he's talked about this elsewhere, as has uh, Huntington and Strauss, excuse me, Dugan refers to that, like strategic modernization, you know, modernization without westernization, trying to preserve some modicum of sovereignty, but you can only do it, you know, not every state is powerful enough to defend its sovereignty vis-a-vis other centers of power. Because as you said, you have to cooperate, you know, you basically some of these countries are just trying to yeah, last long enough to be able to get out of the Uh, situation with some shred of their sovereignty intact so it's a question like he puts it here uh, nation states seeking to preserve their sovereignty in the face of u.s western hegemonic or globalist strategies and some places depending on their leadership depending on their mood depending on their capabilities they may decide to just throw their hat in with the globalist transformation of their society in other words there are some countries that will just buy into the great reset or that don't believe they need to preserve their sovereignty maybe they also see sovereignty of nation states as an outdated relic and they want to become post-national states they want to plug into the globalist um network but those countries that don't i think it's fair to uh categorize them you know the countries that can preserve some sovereignty but must cooperate that can preserve uh, much more you know but still cooperate and the ones that are openly hostile and yeah i would say the key change is just that russia has moved Uh, given the last year and a bit and the tendencies that have been building for longer than that but in particular the um, the new round of hostilities i think has moved russia to category four
0: yeah i think it's hard to deny at this point of course can't can't predict that you know over a decade ago when he writes the book but uh Mm -hmm. uh, but i think well he had said
1: so so his analysis of, of uh, Putin in those years, like he's got a book called Putin versus Putin, for example, mm. and he's also wrote about this in his second Heidegger book. He always consistently, as far as I can tell, analyzed Russia. I mean, he wanted Russia to become fourth, let's say, category four, okay, Eurasian, a distinct civilization, therefore something that throws down the gauntlet to unipolarity. But he always interpreted the Russian Federation and Vladimir Putin's policy as wavering, between those two directions. Between on one hand, the thesis that Russia is a distinct civilization, and on the other hand, the thesis that Russia is a European country. And so Putin versus Putin, the name of one of those books said, you know, you have this solar and lunar Putin, you have the Eurasian and the Atlanticist Putin, you know, you've got the liberals in and around him who are keeping him from following uh, what would be his destiny here to take Russia into uh, Eurasian identity. So he was aware, let's say, even though he wanted russia to go in that direction he was aware of the fact that it was on the fence but what's changed is that it's no longer on the fence you know now it clearly has put and another thing that's interesting russia having taken the position that it's an independent civilization and not a european country is now beginning to develop some of the policy documents to support that self-interpretation which is something dugan's been writing about and commenting on lately
0: so our next chapter is conservatism and postmodernism. um Most people uh, who are who see themselves as American conservatives will have a hard time with kind of just the beginning of this, but we've already talked about it, so we don't have to belabor too much. He just immediately starts. We're already postmodern. This has already happened. We're already through this. And so this is something that conservatives have to learn to interact with. The question is not whether to prevent postmodernism, hold the line against postmodernism. We're already in that moment, and the only thing to do at this point is to understand, as conservatives, how you will interact or, or work within uh, post-modernity.
1: Uh, yeah, oh, that's sorry. right. No, that's all. I just want to say you're um, you're right about that. If I could just make one quick point about the previous chapter, I just oh sure I think, sure sorry just very very quickly because it's a nice one I think worth mentioning, which is that when he talks about the countries that are opposed to global globalism, let's say in some cases opposed to, uh, you know, American hegemony, in some cases opposed to the globalist project, I like that he distinguishes between the fact of these states, but the, but they lack ideological coherence. So you can't oppose globalist ideology without some coherent counter proposition, so to speak. Right. But the specific ideologies of the states, like for example, you know, Iran, Iran is not producing a counter ideology that can fight globalism at its own level you know it's producing some sort of more particular narrow uh islamic anti-americanism so the question is what about what about all of the opponents of globalism is there some political theory or ideology or counter proposal that could unite them and it's interesting because he says the sub-national networks have more you know they're more they're more theoretical they develop ideas and ideologies but they lack state power and the States, they possess some sort of power, especially when they uh, unite together in a block, but they lack the ideological uh, dimension. So he, at some point, I don't remember if it's in this chapter or elsewhere, he says, you know, there can be a genuine possibility for overcoming uh, globalist ideology if you're able to link uh, you know, a power, powerful regional bloc with uh, ideology that is at the same somehow level of generality as globalism is. So I think partially what Dugan is trying to do in the fourth political theory is to be the developer and the exporter of an ideology that actually goes up to the level where you could meet globalist ideology in a fair fight. Because he says all the other Uh, you know anti-capitalist freak show type responses are they have the character of a circus they're not very serious they're like a carnival and you know they don't meet the it's not a fair fight between them and globalist ideology so you need to develop a fair fight and that's why even like the book great awakening versus great reset it shows you he's trying to take a set of ideas great awakening that can actually contest the ideology of the great reset in a fair fight Uh, so that analysis is good because it's true you can have these states that want to preserve their sovereignty but they lack a vision or a model even as Peter Thiel has said when he talked about models for the future you have environmentalism you've got Greta Thunberg you've got Islamism and you've got sort of like cyborg post-humanism where's a you know a coherent vision of the future that can unite uh humanity en masse against the globalist a project so that's just another component of that chapter that i thought was worth mentioning but yeah on the conservatism oh, one, sorry, are no! In, before like we move said, on first... i just
0: sorry before before we move on i do want to i'm glad you brought that up because that is something i think a lot about and i, I want to uh pick your brain about uh, what what dugan would be saying there because so One of the things that I think you're you're really running into, a lot lot of people who are maybe more nationalist have already realized that in some ways you need a global, global nationalism in order to, you know, uh, resist what's happening Uh, with globalism. Like you said, you can't, you can't have all these little isolated uh, countries with kind of their, uh, with with kind of their own uh, uh, circus theories of how to resist this. They, They never form anything cohesive. They never have the ability to push back. But if you're creating this, can you take can you create a global theory of particularism or or particular preference? Like can you if by I guess my point being, isn't the ideology itself what allows the human cooperation to scale? And so it, in order for globalism to take hold, we had to shape humanity in a very particular way. We had to demand the removal of, of particulars. We had to demand the removal of, of regional preferences and interests and shape people in a way that would allow them to be wielded en masse and to be managed en masse. And if we're going to bring a mass strategy against that, can you assemble people and wield them and manage them in a force against that force without putting them under the same level of social engineering that was required by globalism to assemble the Leviathan in the first place.
1: Yeah, so that's obviously a puzzle and part of the problem. And Dugan's suggestion, I would say we have some evidence for how it would play out because you have the idea of a fourth political theory as a general project. So we've already talked about some of the outlines of the general project, right? New concepts of time, shifting the locus of um, interpretation from the individual, the class, the race, and the state to the notion of a people, possibly interpreted through Dasein but these other you know somehow uh obscure um ways of interpreting it like through the imagination Gilbert Duran and so on so these are like general uh parameters for interpretation of plurality but then you have a specific case where he's tried to develop it in its application namely Russia and you also have pockets of adherence of the fourth political theory elsewhere for example there's a later this month a global conference on multipolarity based on Dugan's fourth political theory, where you're gonna have representatives from all over the world. They take these general ideas and they apply them to their unique case. So the question is, you know, how well is that sort of translation working? We see it best in the case of Russia, because Dugan himself, being a Russian, has developed it there, both at the theoretical and the applied levels. Um, but, you, you know, they are Brazilian adherents, Iranian adherents, other adherents of the fourth political theory who are all trying to modify it. So what is his, you know, his model is there are different ways of stating it but it's like people should i i propose dugan says in contrast to national nationalism because nation states cannot be sufficient players here to fight globalism and in opposition to globalism because that's what by assumption here is the target um civilizationalism regional blocks great spaces great powers so more than the nation state but less than globalism for example, Yoram Hazoni, who wrote the book Virtue of Nationalism, who's also fighting in his own way, liberalism on the basis of the idea that we need to revive certain conservative traditions and uh, national conservatism. When he, Yoram Hazoni, lays this picture out, he says, tribes are too small and the universalism is too big. We need a sweet spot in the middle. That sweet spot is nation states, basically. Dugan says there's an even sweeter spot, between nation states and the universal region. And that's civilizations, they're big enough. Regional blocks are big enough to actually become poles. So it's like a regional universalism. And in this case, it preserves, I mean, it doesn't preserve everything, but it preserves some possibility of each uh, pole, each civilization, each regional block, developing its own models of world interpretation, developing its own hierarchy of values, developing its own vision of itself and its place in the world. But in a way that is effective, in in a way that is sovereign, because one of the issues with the fiction of national sovereignty is that it is precisely that, a fiction. Some other nations are not sovereign. They're vassals, whether we like to admit that or not. And I think that's obvious to anybody who's examined the question adequately. You can only be sovereign if you're a big dog, basically. So civilizations can be big dogs, but nation states can only, um, you know, they can only be the wagging tail or whatever so in that case uh that's his model and it's not going to be equivalent the way he develops it people may like this or not like this our goal i think is just to try to understand whether it's coherent what he means and whether it's coherent and feasible but he says there's going to be you know the russian model won't be the iranian model won't be the african model won't be the american model or the european model But what made possible the plurality of civilizational models was, as it were, the meta theory of uh, civilizational plurality in the first place.
0: Excellent. Okay, sorry, I I cut you off talking about conservatism and and postmodernity, but I just want to step in there because that is a project or a problem I've thought a lot about. And I was just wondering, kind of uh, expanding on that, I think would be helpful. But sorry, you were saying conservatives and postmodernity.
1: Yeah. So just uh, following what you said, he opens that chapter by saying we are in postmodernity. So I don't know uh, how many conservatives would contest that fact or you know deny it. I think when you see the conservative discourse online anyways, everybody who looks around sees that something is amiss, something is awry, uh, something has gone off. And that is, you know, you put that all into the whether we call it woke or whether we call it postmodern, something has changed. And so he tries to understand how do we, how do, how does the group of political theories that we Call conservative, um, how can it respond to this new situation? And what I like about this chapter too is for people, for some people, like when I first read this, conservatism kind of meant just one thing. You know, there's like a narrow political conservatism. And this chapter shows you that there are various strategies for dealing with postmodernity that we might not normally identify as conservative in the sense of like conservative party you know the conservative party of canada is not reading julius evola but in some sense traditionalism is its own version of a conservative response to postmodernity. so once again we enrich our concepts here yeah
0: absolutely And, and this is uh this is a chapter where i did not expect it but i laughed quite often uh which i think is kind of great in the middle of a book of this weight but uh but he kind of brings in the he brings in spy kids too as kind of just like the explanation of where the freedom to choose and liberty strips people of kind of their ability to actually make decisions because the, you know, the entertainment is engineered in a way to just kind of farm your dopamine. And like technically, yeah, you've got the ability to like change channels and everything, but you're really just being trained by the technology and by the liberty into a particular behavior that you're not really exercising control over. And so that's kind of where he he develops his first uh, kind of step of conservatism is conservatism is the ability to say no. Conservatism is the ability uh, to, to say no to say, to certain things, including progress. And he has a, a great passage here. And I'm just going to read it real quick, if you'll indulge me, because it's so good that I think people should uh, should hear it here. Uh, but he says, uh, the Western liberal model says, uh, you want to oppose us, please, you have the right. But look. You will, uh, you'll not want to give up your washing machine, right? The washing machine is the absolute argument uh, uh, of the supporters of progress. After all, everyone wants a washing machine. Black people, Native people, conservatives, and Orthodox. Communists too. According to a different logic, uh, uh, spoke of the necessity of irreversibility of structural change. Uh, and he just kind of talks about how like uh, that, you know, yeah, actually human beings can be happy without a washing machine. It's not... It's not the, the, uh, the entire thing, but he talks about, uh, just skipping ahead here real quick. He says, but for liberal society, this is a terrifying thing, almost a sacrilege. We can understand everything, but life without the washing machine, this is already a really unscientific life without the washing machine. Is it is impossible. And he just talks about how basically liberals will threaten to kill you. If you're not willing, if, if you're willing to turn away from the washing machine, if you're, if you're willing to turn away from progress, uh, or willing to say no to some portion of progress, then they will see that as like a direct existential threat to their own Liberty.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing passage and it presents. So memorably the idea that we're all dedicated to comfortable self-preservation as an absolute as an absolute and uncontestable principle. And nobody would ever want anything other than comfortable self-preservation. That's what the washing machine has to do with that. It's yeah, everywhere, everybody at this point has been won over to that way of life. But the problem, as, uh, as Dugan knows, and as you know, and as other uh, people who uh, read some of the opposition writers, you know, opposition to bourgeois liberal democracy and all of that, no, some people crave war, risk, courage, threat, bravery, existential depth, and more than you get from just comfortable self-preservation. Now, that's not to say, you know, I think we all simultaneously enjoy the benefits of modern technology the benefits of modern science and culture. We're able to talk because of the camera, microphone, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to go over it. It's well known that we've all benefited from these things. But Dugan's main point is not whether we've benefited from it, but whether it's possible or not to want something else, whether the trade-off is decided for all time that whatever we lost on the road to comfortable self-preservation you can never hope to regain again and you're some sort of freak show if you'd even consider it and there i think he has a very solid point uh liberal thought has taken for granted too much that this is the decisive consideration for humanity or that it ought to be and that there's nothing else that somebody could want and schmidt for example in the concept of the political he writes about this as well because in some sense the metaphysics of the washing machine is equivalent to depoliticization. everything is just about comfortable consumer living there's no more there's nothing you would kill or die for there's no more serious fundamental disagreement over the meaning of a human life or meaning of a good human life so yeah it's a very memorable passage and again the key the key point is it or isn't it possible for a human being to say no are we just faded by the metaphysics of the washing machine always to go in the direction of new more efficient technologies and if so at what expense because okay fine the washing machine is the washing machine but the processes behind the desire for comfortable self-preservation the use of technology to that end culminate when dugan does his full analysis in the threat of total dehumanization in the threat of total like behind the metaphysics of the washing machine when you extrapolate to its full conclusion you have the replacement of humanity by technology and then we're into a serious problem because what if you care about the human being what if you care about the war against the human nature well then it's a it's a few steps from one to the other and that's why he raises this concern the human being asserts his dignity when he can say no to the processes that implicate him in his own destruction.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the TV show altered carbon. Um, but it's, uh, it's, uh, pretty pulpy, but it's got uh, some interesting moments in the, in the first season. And basically the premise is humans have advanced to the point where everybody's consciousness can be downloaded into like a computer that they kind of wear on their spine. And so if like you get killed. You can get put in a new body, and, and your consciousness can kind of be uh, moved over. But one of the interesting parts of the show is that the only group that was willing to resist this technology were Catholics, because they believe that you know God created us with a soul, and we only have one life, and you can't actually transfer someone's soul to another body. And so, like their ability to say no means that they can't be trapped in what is turns out to be like kind of a hellacious existence of technological eternal life but only for the rich in a particular way and everyone else is stuck in this really terrifying you know existence and I just thought about that a little bit like the abil- the, the religious you know boundaries and beliefs allowing them to say no to something that actually fundamentally destroyed the rest of the human nat- race and their human nature uh, in kind of in that scenario.
1: Yes, yeah, so that maps on, you know, Dugan in this chapter says that among the conservative groups that will be able to say no to this technological uh, march, again, treating it as a necessity or something like that. Uh, are these religious groups but that includes also and this is where some conservatives would automatically like recoil probably that includes religious fundamentalists and not only christian because there are non-christian religious fundamentalists who also would reject the metaphysics of the washing machine for the same type of reason you know they also want to preserve something uh some shred of human dignity in the face of this march and so when dugan does his analysis of these various conservative groupings okay the traditionalists fundamental conservatives uh, very nice when he talks about status quo liberals because they also say whoa let's slow things down we don't want to become postmodern but we don't want to reject postmodernity in the name of religious fundamentalism we sort of just wanna hit the brakes and stay where we are let's roll back the clock from post liberalism to liberalism from postmodernity to modernity and you definitely see in my view this position reflected today in the conservative culture war debates uh, I don't know his work well enough to say for sure, so I hope this isn't misleading. But I get the impression that, for example, James Lindsay takes that kind of position. You know, post postmodernism is bad, but so is uh religious nationalism and so is national conservatism. So let's just go from postmodernity back to modernity, post-liberalism back to liberalism. Uh so he analyzes that and Dugan says that is uh, that point of view is not tenable for any serious conservative because it still preserves the basic uh orientation towards liberalism. Um, well let's
0: let's go ahead and expand those those categories then because you're getting into them and I think it'll be helpful for people to have the categories before we we go into that discussion okay so he breaks down kind of uh three main forms of uh conservatism that are opposing what's going on and then kind of a fourth one as well he talks about the traditionalists the status quo liberals that you were just talking about and then revolutionary conservatives and he also kind of includes kind of in this subgroup uh, kind of leftist social conservatives so could you, could you talk uh, uh, about kind of those three groups and the way they're kind of opposing, uh, it, you know, the, the pluses and minuses of the way they're opposing things in Dugan's view?
1: Sure, so the fundamental conservatives, the traditionalists, I think it's well summarized in this sentence of this. He says, traditionalism is that form of conservatism, which contends the following. What is bad are not those separate fragments here and there within a larger system that call out for our repudiation. In the contemporary world, everything is bad. The idea of progress is bad, the idea of technological development is bad, Descartes' philosophy of the subject and object is bad, Newton's metaphor of the watchmaker is bad. Basically everything modern needs to be rejected. So the traditionalists, they are anti-modern, they want to go back, and they're going back, it can take different forms, it can go back from progress to eternity, it can go back from the modern world to the ancient world but it's a total and utter repudiation of the modern for what came before it. And there are people here that he's written about, like uh, René Guénon and Julius Evola, for example. Uh, Dugan has written about them. He studied them. He considers them important uh, critics of modernity, absolutely uh, relevant for his whole project. But it's this, here's another way he puts characterizes Guénon and Evola. In this section, they described traditional society as a super temporal ideal so you reject modernity you go back to traditional society traditional society exists above time outside of time it's an ideal like that And the contemporary world of modernity and its foundational principles are a fall they're a product of yeah the fall degeneration degradation decomposition of hierarchy shift to materialism from spiritualism and so on so that for him is pretty important and besides people like gwenon and evola you have as i said religious fundamentalist christian and non-christian for whom um everything modern is sick degraded and to be repudiated so i think that's a way of characterizing it and he does see some thing in that school of thought it's not in my view where he ultimately lands he's closer to conservative revolution as he says and we can discuss that in a second but this is still an important uh attitude towards modernity for him
0: right and then so you already kind of described the second group there which are the status quo liberals, and they understand there's a problem with what's going on, but they don't want to oppose it uh, from that traditionalist mindset. And so they're just looking to roll things back. Liberalism wasn't that bad. There, there's no fundamental problems here. We just need to get rid of kind of the the, the hostile postmodern uh, <clears throat> strain of this, and we can kind of roll back to the 1990s and enjoy Bill Clinton and AOL and, 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 all, and exactly. all of the things that came along with <laughs> it
1: one nice point too in that section he says and i think this is right and also maps on to what we see when we look at the culture war conservative culture war ourselves he said the liberal conservatives they are they're they're scared of the red scare okay they're terrified of communism and bolshevism and all of that but they're equally scared they really are worried that if they open up any door to the right of themselves all the subterranean fascist energies are going to come bubbling back up to the surface. So think about all you know all of the positions that take that like they attack uh, they attack wokeism from the right, but they also are very careful not to open the door even you know a millimeter to the right of themselves. That's status quo conservatism for uh, for Dugan. He's got some really nice passages about that that I think are accurate. Uh, again, really worried that they're going to open the door to fundamental conservatism it's, pr- it's probably not an unfounded worry it's not not trying to mock it but i think he's right in characterizing as he puts it oh yeah uh you don't want they worry the status quo conservatives they worry that there would be god forbid a release from some basement of those dormant energies with which the jacobins used which the jacobins used in the terror and the anti-terror and so on so they want to keep everything exactly 1990s frozen don't open the door to criticisms on the left or on the right don't raise the quest don't raise the problem of the direction of history or the nature of time just sort of shut all of that out shut all of it down freeze us in this capitalist sweet spot and stay there as long as you possibly can
0: yeah and you can tell that this is the case because almost all if you're ever wondering if someone is in this position they almost always buttress what they're saying against the left with like but the right is the real problem like you need to be careful of the right we we can't we can't let these so so yeah we need to have all these criticism post-modernity but not those criticisms those criticisms are dangerous we can't acknowledge any of those truths about humanity and so we have to keep everything in a very narrow box this kind of this kind of uh sweet spot of liberalism where we had we had discarded all of the traditional parts of human bonds, but before we had lapsed into kind of the, the thing that would inevitably fill that that uh, hole in kind of uh, human understanding, once those things are gone, they lived, they lived at one one little, you know, sweet couple decades, and they think that they can somehow freeze time in, in that place and keep both left and right out of kind of where they want to be. Um, yeah, so that's the yeah.
1: movement clearly, right? He's, yeah. he's correct to identify yeah. them. And then the next one, uh, the Conservative Revolution, maybe you wanted to say something about it first. No, um, no, so no, no. I was just going to say,
0: there. and now the Conservative Revolution. You were, you were going the same direction yeah. I was.
1: So the Conservative Revolution, this is a very important uh, movement to understand uh, in principle and in theory, because for Dugan, it's crucial. So here's a problem. You reject modernity, let's say. You reject post-modernity. You reject the state of affairs. You're conservative in that sense. You want to go back to something earlier, like the fundamental conservatives do or the traditionalists do. But the Conservative Revolution group says, "What we see now and what we're against now is somehow the consequence of what was there before. They're related in some way. So we now see the outcome of something that was la- a latent possibility at an earlier period. So just by returning to the past, all we're doing is returning back to that period of latency, and then we'll run the you know we'll run the movie again." And we'll get exactly back to where we are now in other words the seeds of our current catastrophe are present in the past they're present in the pre-modern traditional social configuration of things and so the conservative revolutionaries want to understand what is the nature of this entire eschatological drama what is the negativity built into the original state that over time plays itself out as a nihilistic crisis so this is very, uh, you know, this makes us think a little bit more than just the fundamental conservative rejection of modernity does, certainly more than the status quo uh, conservatism or liberal conservatism does, because it forces us to try to understand the whole process that led from the beginning to where we are now. As he says um trying to understand the secret parallel non-evident intention of the deity itself or in some sense again trying to understand the eschatological drama as more than just social as like what is there's a why does stu end up having to think about people like heidegger or raise questions about the nature of time precisely because he's attracted by this kind of approach how do we see the relationship between where we began and where we ended in terms of what it all means Uh, so conservative revolutionaries do that in some sense this is maybe slightly related to what we discussed uh in part last time about accelerationists the conservative revolution say let's get through the this nihilistic crisis in order that we come out the other side of it completing as it were the eschatological drama and inaugurating a new beginning another uh era or another epoch so we're not trying to push things into chaos for the sake of chaos but because as you complete as post-modernity plays itself out the gloomy end of the show as it plays itself out to its own absurd uh logical or illogical consequences that will provide the soil for possible healthy rebirth of thinking and of being basically um, so yeah that's conservative revolution it's very close and i should say just one passage here i think is very important he says from a philosophical point of view this is the most interesting school you know, what because Dugan's a philosophical supremacist, we need to understand that that's high praise for him, and therefore I think we should categorize him most of all among the conservative revolutionaries.
0: Excellent. And uh, oh, someone was asking about uh, what uh, what Dugan thought about accelerationism. actually, as I understand, Dugan spoke about land in uh, he gave like an hour long talk, but it was in russian and and someone sent me like a, a like some kind of like ticker tape translation. It was going through very quickly. I couldn't really make anything of it so it was difficult but i'd be interested if there if anyone can find an english uh, transcription of his uh, his talk on land and accelerationism i would i would be fascinated to to take more of a look on that and, and get a better understanding uh but we should probably say he does identify one other small group which is left-wing uh conservatism uh he does talk a little bit about how there are some strains of uh, uh of left-wingers who are still uh interested in in social conservatism i think this is kind of uh maybe the old left those who who had not embraced the woke part of uh of leftism uh in that way but he it's only a, it's only really a paragraph on it so uh, i don't know if there's a whole lot of, to discuss there more than just acknowledging that it does exist
1: yeah just the key point here is that it's a uh, national bolshevism uh left-wing conservatism What is conservative about it is the national dimension or the ethnic dimension or the somehow a traditionalist dimension. So, this combines social justice theses with some notion of a folkish or ethnic or national identity. National, not in the bourgeois nation state, merely civic citizenship sense, but in the traditional, rooted, archaic, uh, linguistic, ethnic sense. So, these movements, uh, he thinks, have something, um, they represent something distinct and he had tried to even do this kind of national bolshevik uh or national um social conservatism in russia he mentions why that failed and so on but yeah it's again the only key thing to say about it for example what's different between the left-wing uh conservatism and the status quo liberalism the nation-state civil society juridical emphasis of one focused on rights versus like the ethnic archaic traditional heritage rooted uh localist you know ethnic sense of the other so yeah he mentions that movement in passing and elsewhere too i think in one of the other chapters he says uh maybe in a subsequent chapter he's like this is also a relevant uh, leftist uh movement today right. so it's leftist but still conservative so
0: in, in that sense yeah yeah so um uh we did hit our hour so if you don't have time that's that's no problem but he does talk about uh eurasianism as kind of the last part of this chapter i don't know if you uh had time to kind of uh just touch on eurasianism and neo-eurasianism
1: yeah so uh the key i have something to say about this that i think is pretty important from this chapter actually first let me say briefly that eurasianism was a school of thought in a nutshell that said there are more than one civilization okay the plurality of civilizations was one of the key elements of original eurasianism and they used that in order to think about the distinctness of russian uh, civilization russian identity okay there's there's a nice book called foundations of eurasianism where you can see excerpts from some of the early foundation uh early Eurasians, their debates the key idea for Dugin that he derives from this school of uh, russian thinkers is plurality of civilizations okay they were anti-soviets uh m- many of them exiled on the sh- philosophers ships if you guys have ever heard of that where the new soviet union sent out philosophers and writers and authors and poets and theologians on- literally on ships sent them out of the country so some of these emigres they ended up developing this uh model and one thing about it so eurasianism is a nosiological plurality Noziological means like how we know how we understand in other words si- let's say scientific plurality like we were discussing earlier they have different models of politics culture anthropology for each civilization so this is important for dugan because he traces his own work to that tradition but here's the key beautiful thing so dugan we could say is a neo-eurasianist so the eurasianist contributed an analysis of civilizational plurality what is the neo part what's novel and distinct and there's a lot we could say but i think what dugan himself says is very clear and very helpful he says neo-eurasianism which appeared in russia in the late 1980s and this he's referring to himself okay he's the leading theorist of neo-eurasianism completely apprehended the fundamental points of the previous eurasianists uh, model of understanding okay so it took something from them here's the key point but it supplemented them this is where we get the neo with attention to traditionalism geopolitics structuralism the fundamental ontology of heidegger sociology and anthropology and likewise carried out the gigantic task of producing concord between the basic theses of Eurasianism and the new postmodern situation. So what makes Neo-Eurasianism distinct? It has incorporated the key insights of 20th century intellectual uh, history, structuralism, post-structuralism, Heidegger, and so on, to enrich our understanding of the thesis of civilizational plurality, and to bring it up to date with the current conditions of postmodern globalism. So that's very nice in my view. That helps us to understand in a quick formula what dugan is trying to do civilizational multipolarity using all the tools of 20th century intellectual contributions in the state of post-modernity that's neo-eurasianism in a nutshell
0: excellent all right guys well we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here but i think it's been another great conversation there's really so much to learn here and of course uh michael millerman is really one of the foremost uh people to learn this from so michael where can people go to get your work better understand this and the other thinkers that you study?
1: If you go to michaelmillerman.com or duganbook.com, you'll see the books that I've written, one on Dugan, one on Heidegger, which includes an analysis of Dugan's reception of Heidegger. Millermanschool.com is where I teach courses on all of these authors, including several on Dugan, several on Heidegger, several on Strauss. And my main social media channel is Twitter, M underscore I also put out tons of free lectures on YouTube. So if you just search Michael Millerman, you'll find everywhere that I am. And I hope people get a chance to follow me online and check out my courses and books and all of that.
0: Excellent, guys, make sure that you do so. And of course, if this is your first time here, make sure that you are subscribed to the channel. If you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you're subscribing to The Orr McIntyre Show on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if you do, please go ahead and leave that like, or rather that review or that rating It really helps out with the algorithms and everything. All right, guys, thank you for coming by. I know it's really early, so I appreciate your dedication to philosophy. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.